The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 14th chapter, beginning with the 13th verse. Glory Glory to you, O Lord. Now when Jesus heard about the beheading of John the Baptist, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled, and they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, O Christ. My sermon text for today is the Gospel lesson, Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. My sermon title for this morning is, The Breaking is Under the Blessing. That's based on verse 19 in your text. The Breaking is Under the Blessing. This text we have before us this morning, known alternatively as the feeding of the 5,000 or the multiplication of the loaves and fish, is quite possibly Jesus' most well-known or famous miracle. One reason for its elevated status is that apart from his own resurrection, this is the only miracle to occur in all four of the Gospels. So this is as close to universal acclaim as we are likely to get. The narrative sense testifies to the abundance of God. Whereas we humans tend to see only or chiefly scarcity and lack, verse 17 says, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish, God sees and provides and enacts abundance. Verses 20 and 21, and all ate and were filled. And those who ate were 5,000 men apart from women and children. So the first inherent question we must ask and challenge which we must face is how is it that we see only lack, insufficiency, not enough in our lives and in the world at large, and yet God sees and indeed provides what is ample, sufficient, and abundant? Is it a matter of faith, of power, of sharing, or of all three? Lest this story seem so fanciful, legendary, mythical, as to be nice and sweet, but actually impossible, 
I happened upon a quote once from Mother Teresa of Calcutta, which stunned me because it seemed so unlikely. In the midst of her serving so many downtrodden and rejected in the teeming slums of Calcutta, she remarked in an interview, I never turned away a child. Never. Not one. How is that possible? I mused skeptically. I mean, there's such a thing as reality, as finitude, as a limit to certain resources. Or is there? Is there some world out there, some reality, some mathematical truth of which I and my sinful, broken, fearful, and greedy flesh am unaware? <clears throat> of course, the miracle here is of a literal physical feat of 5,000 plus people with only five loaves of bread and two fish. The operating principle behind this story then is that God, in this case Jesus, his son in embodied form, takes a little and makes a lot. He takes what is seen as or is insufficient and multiplies it to make abundance to the point of surplus. That principle really shouldn't surprise us that much even if the grand scale of the miracle itself does. Because God does this in our lives all the time. I mean, think of how often you experience anxiety about not having enough. And think of all the devastating consequences that you envision for your life. Homelessness, begging, incarceration, hospitalization, poverty, even death. And yet, few, if any of those things, have touched you are in here this morning or online. You are alive, healthy, free, have a residence or home to which to return, educated, gainfully employed, or meaningfully retired. We are mindful of the fact that some of these things do touch some people. And because of that, we wrestle to find just and merciful solutions. But my point is, how many of us worry incessantly about catastrophic outcomes which never come to pass. So, if we honestly reflect, we look back on our lives and see years and years of insufficient time and energy and resources, and yet we also now see that we are here, that God has provided a way. We can behold abundance in our lives in some form or fashion, and we can often even behold a surplus. So this miracle we have before us this morning shouldn't really surprise us, nor the way God has operated in our lives so far. Because only one chapter earlier, Jesus taught about the nature of God in God's kingdom by saying the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, yet when it is grown, it is the largest of all shrubs. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Or in Mark 4, the kingdom of God is like seed on the ground. That seed sprouts and grows we know not how. As we sleep and rise day after day, night after night, the earth produces of itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain. Until one day it's ample harvest time. So taking a little and making a lot, my friends, is simply what God does and who God is. It's not just true in a teaching parable kind of way, but in reality, in our lives, over the long haul. But I would also like to examine and assess this story from other points of view as well. 
You may not have ever considered this before, but I would like to submit to you that this story is tinged with melancholy and saturated with an underlying sadness. The text opens in verse 13 with the following. Now when Jesus heard about the beheading of his friend, cousin, and forerunner, John the Baptist, he withdrew from that place in a boat to a deserted place by himself. The older translation renders this deserted place as a lonely place. So Jesus is grieving the loss here of someone important to him, a loved one. And this leads to him withdrawing to a lonely place by himself. Even the Son of God is not immune to loss and sadness. And in this case, loneliness. It soon ends, however, as the crowds hear about him and pursue him from all around. As you can see there, he then beholds them, has compassion for them, and heals their sick. <clears throat> when it was evening, verse 15 continues, the disciples said to him, This is a deserted place. Again, in the former translation, this is a lonely place. The hour is now late. Send them away to go buy food and feed themselves. I am struck by the fact that the disciples describe this place as deserted or lonely. How can it be deserted or lonely, given that there are between five and 15,000 people gathered? That's the opposite of deserted or lonely. In all likelihood, they merely mean that it's out in a rural or remote area, far away from any town or restaurants, as it were. But it still strikes me as intriguing that the text can refer to a place being lonely when there are five to 15,000 people present. How many of you know you can be lonely in the midst of other people? Oftentimes, even large crowds of people. Just outside of our text, in the next two verses, which serve to wrap up this narrative before beginning the next one, Scripture says Jesus dismissed the crowds, made the disciples get into a boat to go before him to the other side, while he himself went up a mountain by himself to pray, and he was there alone. This seems to be a self-imposed isolation where Jesus is seeking some solitude presumably due to fatigue or exhaustion. Obviously, he's had a full day of healing, perhaps teaching and feeding the masses. So to summarize, Jesus withdraws to a lonely place by himself due to grief and loss. He and the disciples inhabit a lonely place, even though they are in the midst of thousands of other people. And Jesus finds himself, if not lonely, then at least alone in the end due to fatigue and possible exhaustion, burdened with the demands of his life and calling, specifically with caring for other people. How many of us are lonely? How many of us struggle with this experience, this feeling? And we do so silently, never admitting it to others because we are embarrassed. We don't understand it and therefore can't explain it. We feel silly and ridiculous because we are blessed with so much and surrounded with so much. We have no right to be lonely. And yet Jesus 
is lonely. The very creator of the cosmos, he who is eternal with God and spoke into existence creation, has come to his own home and his own people receive him not. He is lonely and he is sad because he has experienced loss. And it is a loss, a hole that cannot be filled by the ample presence of other people. And it is a loneliness that is only exaggerated and exacerbated by the demands of life. By the demands of loving and caring for others. And so we ought not feel embarrassed or ashamed, my friend, in our own loneliness. If it happened to a man who is the very image of the invisible God, why wouldn't it happen to those of us made in that image and after that likeness? We have all experienced loss. The loss of a loved one. The loss of a relationship. The loss of a job or a career. The loss of energy, passion, meaning, and purpose. And because of that loss, we have withdrawn to a lonely place by ourselves. And it is often a loneliness untouched and undiminished by external factors like other people. You can be lonely in a crowd, my friend. You can be lonely among friends and co-workers. You can be lonely in a marriage. Add on top of that, the burdens and responsibilities of life, caring and providing for others, and it quickly can become overwhelming. Yes, this is a good and positive and powerful account we have before us today, but we ought not overlook, shrug off, or dismiss the fact that it is in reality arising from the soil of loneliness and sadness, which is as nearly a universal human experience as there is. <clears throat> what does Jesus say in verse 16? The first five words out of his mouth. <clears throat> they need not go away. They need not go away. Why would we go away? Well, we've just seen it. Loss, grief, loneliness, sadness, fatigue, exhaustion, burden, burned out. And those things produce or yield guilt, embarrassment, shame, and depression. Why wouldn't we go away? Go away to the bottle. Go away to the pill. Go away to the arms of another man or woman who gets us. Go away to another job or career or to another physical location. Go away to whatever, whomever, whenever, wherever. But we need not go away. Jesus said they need not go away. Can we entertain the possibility for a moment <clears throat> that we are the bread in this account? I mean, yes, Jesus is dealing here with literal physical bread, but in the very last chapter in parables, he has symbolically called us as children of God wheat, remember, as opposed to the weeds, and as good soil, which brings forth grain, remember, a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. So you and I, spiritually speaking, in these parables are wheat and grain. So we can at least potentially consider ourselves the bread, the five loaves, here in this account. <clears throat> Verse 18. 
Jesus says, bring them here to me. Bring them here to me. They need not go away. Bring them here to me. As you are, guilty, embarrassed, depressed, grieving, lonely, and sad, bring them here to me. Taking them, He looked up to heaven and blessed them. Then He broke them and gave them to the crowds. In this scenario, might we, might you and I, be taken, blessed, broken, and given. We could go back and forth on whether it's God or Jesus who breaks us or the circumstances of life in this world which are breaking us. And in either case, in what sense and how, but that's not our purview here today. Suffice it to say, the breaking hurts, but it's under the blessing, and it results in giving. The bread is not broken and then blessed. No, the bread is blessed and then broken. So the breaking is under the blessing. There's none of your breaking that's not under God's blessing and doesn't result in giving. The breaking is never pleasant or easy. In some circumstances, it may be downright debilitating. But in this scenario, it does not occur outside or apart from the blessing. You have been blessed. Everything about you has been blessed. And anything broken in you has not been broken apart from the sight of God. Divorced from God's care and protection and desire for your well-being. And because your breaking is under God's blessing, you can be given. Given to others, given to neighbors, given to your neighborhood, your community, your society, and indeed the world itself. Given in love. Given in service, given in compassion, given in assistance. The bread herein is broken under the blessing in order to be given to feed, help, and assist, and edify others. So too, you have been broken in some crucial ways in your life. But because that's under the blessing of God, its result is that you are now given to help others. Your pain can help others perhaps who have gone through a similar pain. Your brokenness, particularly if unjust, can help ensure that others don't experience that which was visited upon you. The brokenness does not have the final word. The blessing does. Because others' lives are saved and rescued through it. Through your brokenness. Your brokenness can contribute to others' healing. In the same way that Jesus' brokenness on the cross through death has caused your healing, forgiveness, and reconciliation. So what's the final word on the bread and on your brokenness? They took up what was left over of the broken pieces. This is after all ate and were filled. So after all ate and were filled, there are still broken pieces of bread. They are left over. There's no one left to feed. There's no more need to be satisfied. No more hunger to be sated. No more brokenness to be healed. It's all taken care of. It's all resolved. So what do you do with your broken pieces which are left over? Most of us think that the broken pieces of our hearts that are left over 
are just that. Leftover. Most of us think that the broken pieces of our minds, our bodies, our lives are just strewn about leftovers scattered on the floor of our spent lives. But in the text, in the text, they are taken up in baskets. But why would they be taken up? There's no more need. Everyone has eaten. Everybody is full. Why don't you just leave them on the ground? Let the birds come along and eat them. Why do you even take them up at all? There's really only one possibility, I think. You don't gather or collect what you don't intend to use. God is going to use your broken leftovers. What you considered broken, God is going to employ. What you consider left over in your life, tiny fragments, God is going to put to use. Down the road, at some other time, at some other place, you can't see it now because all you see is broken leftovers. And you are not discerning the fact that God is quietly and without any fanfare at all, picking them up and storing them in baskets to be used at a later point in time in His kingdom. The breaking is under the blessing. The breaking is always under the blessing. Amen.